0: It's shifting away from thinking predominantly in bilateral trade terms to an approach that is much more about a kind of global approach or global challenges, WTO reform, digital and sustainability. I think those are the key agenda items that are very much front and center.
1: What impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system? What role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future? After COVID-19, what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator, is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendaal Institute.
2: Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2021. A series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Korteweg, I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendaal Institute in the Netherlands. And today we're going to discuss the EU's new trade strategy. How is it different from previous ones? And will it deliver? I will do that with two eminent experts in the field. From Paris, Elvire Fabry joins us. Elvire is a senior research fellow at the Jacques Delors Institute. She's been there since 2009. She's in charge of trade policy, the EU and globalization and Brexit. And secondly, from London, I'm joined by Marianne Schneider-Petzinger. Marianne is a Senior Research Fellow in the US and the Americas program at Chatham House. She writes and speaks on global trade, transatlantic economic cooperation, the US use of geoeconomic strategies and tools. She's also an avid watcher of EU trade policy. Marianne Elvire, great that you can join me.
0: Thanks for having us.
2: In February, The European Union launched its new trade strategy and the trade policy review, as it's known, has as subtitle an open, assertive and sustainable trade policy. Now that sounds great, but let's try to unpack this. What does open, sustainable and assertive trade policy actually mean? Now, amid questions about the future of the international trading system, challenges to the functioning of the World Trade Organization, the COVID shock to the global economy, global trade tensions between the US and China, concerns about climate change, as well as a desire to harness the digital revolution, not to mention the fact that we have a new commission having taken office not that long ago. It kind of makes sense that the EU wanted to update its trade strategy. But I want to ask you, what is actually new about this? How is this different from previous ones? So perhaps Elvire, for you first, what, what struck you? What innovations in this trade strategy do you really think jumped out at you when you, uh, when you first saw this? I
3: think that the, the first thing that I would underline is that the way the review has been received in the member states and in third countries, it's interesting to see that it has been very well acknowledged. There has been a very good welcome of the, of the review. So there's content. There's really, it's a dense review and it has come very timely. The European Commission was right to postpone the publication of the review It has been able to factor in the change of U.S. administration, which is a major factor for the future of uh, global trade. Having said that, I have the feeling that in a way there's no major announcement in the review about very concrete new initiatives, because many things were already in the pipe, uh, in the making of the European Commission, in the digital trade. And it, it is more that it is giving coherence to the EU trade strategy. And starting from there, I think I would underline three elements uh, and which obviously illustrate the open strategic autonomy. One thing that strikes me is the really the new assertive position of the, of the EU uh, based on, on trade policy. It's not that it is made to, to build a more assertive EU in the future. It's that the content is really already showing a much more assertive EU. And notably, I think that all the new tools that are being prepared, that have been implemented during the fall, and that will be presented in the coming year, allowing the EU to react autonomously, those are really interesting. Some of them are based, I mean, are only a sort of replication of what the US has done, like the capacity to, to screen uh, foreign direct investments, but there are new instruments in the making to be able to control foreign subsidies, and uh, more reciprocity in public procurement, those elements are really interesting. And that I think has been heard by the public opinions in, in the member states. The second element, it's really, it's not about uh, more trade, but it's about trade better in a better way. And the way the strategy is really building on a sort of U-turn on aligning on uh, the green transition has been a major a major element of this review. And again, it's interesting to see the reaction of the European Parliament to the review and that the Greens have been broadly supportive of the review. They have been positively surprised. And the the final element that I would uh, underline is that the effort concerning WTO reform, it's not only pointing at WTO reform, it's that it is really making some very concrete proposals with an extensive roadmap and when you see that the annex is as long as the review, almost, it is really pointing at the main long-term objective of the EU. And those are three major pillars of the review that I think are interesting.
2: Right. But I think picking up on one of the things you mentioned, and I want to put this to, to, to Marianne, if she agrees, is you mentioned, Elvira, that in a way the, the trade strategy is also response to domestic concerns, the, the Greens were, ha- were happy, perhaps that was not anticipated, at least to such degree, that uh, the domestic politics seem to have embraced this strategy if I can paraphrase you. Does that suggest that the trade strategy as such is more of a response to developments inside the European Union and the way Europeans think about trade rather than a response to outward or external developments?
0: Well, I think it's actually about the changed context. And again, since the 2015 Predator Strategy, a lot has changed from, you've already mentioned Brexit, Trump's protectionism, more sort of China and US-China tensions, the demise of the WTOs, Pelvati, COVID-19. I mean, you name it, that comes on top of many, many long-term and structural developments, including climate change, including the digital transformation. So I think... The new trade review is really um, responding to that, and that is reflected in the three main objectives that are, again, emphasizing the recovery from the pandemic, but also the transition to green economy and more digitalization. It's about, again, the global rules, shaping those for more sustainable and fairer globalization, and then also increasing the U.S. capacity to act and enforce its rights. So I think all of that really is um, a combination of internal and external factors, but the external developments and, again, structural shifts are are key. And, um, again, I think to to some extent that also reflects some of the, the major shifts that I see coming from this new strategy, which is that it's shifting away from thinking predominantly in bilateral trade terms to an approach that is much more about a kind of global approach or global challenges, WTO reform, digital and sustainability, I think those are the key agenda items that are very much front and center. And to some extent, again, that isn't hugely surprising, but um, I think the emphasis is shifted dramatically. And again, as Elvira mentioned, the emphasis on WTO reform is, is quite striking to me as well, not just in terms of the length of the annex, which at 19 pages is almost the same length as the main document but also the details of the proposals and the language. The language is actually more specific and a bit bolder than the main text suggests. And um, I think that could really be a blueprint going forward.
2: Right. And I mean, that's that's... Absolutely fascinating to note uh, that the annex on the WTO is almost as long as the strategy itself. In in our AIG Global Trade Series 2021, we're going to have a dedicated conversation about WTO reform. So we'll 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 get back to that. I want to return to Elvire's point about the assertiveness, sort of the assertive dimension in the trade strategy. The trade strategy is based on this idea of open strategic autonomy. Where, Where does the EU now want to be? autonomous? And what tools does it give itself to be able to do that? And then the, kind of the, the follow-up to that is, that, is, that an, is that enough given what we're seeing in the trade environment with you know tensions between the US and China are continuing? There is a concern about protectionism that the COVID pandemic is not going to reduce protectionism uh, to that extent. We have this question about vaccine nationalism. We see the EU is in some respects also being blamed of of some of these policies. I think the question to in my mind is to what extent is this desire to be more assertive or this desire to be more autonomous actually um, a problem when it comes to the openness element of the trade strategy. Namely, the EU wants to invest in an open multilateral rules-based system, but at the same time, it feels it's necessary to be, to be assertive and to show its trade muscle. How do you, how do you see that, that dilemma between those two? Or am I just sort of making, making that up and that it doesn't really exist?
3: I think that we are perfectly conscious that there's some trends pushing for more protectionism in, in different member states, in different, different political parties. Uh more specifically in some member states, let's say. But the leeway between keeping an open market and, and tending to what more protectionism is, uh, is not, very, uh, it's not very large. And that it was important precisely to build up, n- not only to elaborate some new instruments, but also a narrative about defending the single market and uh, what way and how to structure uh, an agenda of leveling playing field at different levels. And that was important, and I think it's very clear in the review, the way this agenda is structured around uh, more cooperation with partners at the level of the WTO, but also at the plurilateral level, at the bilateral level, and autonomously, precisely. And that's where I think that the capacity to respond more on a more defence note is really something that is uh, making the case for an EU that, that is really in the driving seat. And that is not only following uh, and responsing to, to what's uh, the, the aggressions, the aggressivity uh, that can come from uh, one or the other partners.
2: Marianne, do you see that similarly, that this tension that there may be isn't, is perhaps just also a, a logical response to the new trade reality in which the EU finds itself? That it, on the one hand, needs to be open, needs to invest in the WTO, needs to be sort of pro multilateral rules based trade. And on the other hand, can't, can't but take steps to protect the single market, to have strong investment screening, to introduce conditionalities on market access. I and mean, how do you see that, that tension developing?
0: I think there are certainly tensions and trade offs. And ultimately, the question is you know, is that the right balance? But I think what the EU is also made clear is that of that trio between open, sustainable, and assertive, open, I think, is still very much the key emphasis. And the question to me is that, um, you know, that could potentially be overshadowed by perceptions or indeed actually also initiatives that point in the other direction. And I think the vaccine nationalism debate and export bans actually, you know, could be one of those examples. But I think more broadly speaking, I think, It's also about, you know, balancing interests and values. And this trade review makes clear that it can go hand in hand. And that also internal and external actions need to be joined up. But again, the critical question is, does it have teeth? And here it's important to keep in mind what the trade review is and is not. And really, it is about a framework, a strategy looking forward. It's not necessarily about implementation. So it's really about just, um, you know, the next five years in terms of the broad aims, but it's not really about specific policy suggestions. And I think there, again, the key is what will come um, in terms of actually implementing and enforcing it.
2: It, it. it brings me back to this issue we just touched upon. the To what extent is the review a response to external dynamics? And to what extent is it because there are internal pressures? Do Do you think that in terms of the internal reception of the trade strategy, that this Emphasis on being more assertive, of showing the EU being able to "quote unquote" protect the single market, to protect its trade interests in a more forceful way. That is um, is also convincing European member states and the public at large that the EU is now able to get more popular support in favour of its trade policy.
3: I think it's it's going into the right directions. I'm afraid there may be on the other side some blind spots that maybe have not been so covered in, in the review. First of all, the issue about inequalities produced by, by trade policy. It's raised as in the review as soon as in the first page, but then it's not really addressed. Uh, there's a very interesting element in the review concerning SMEs and and the focus that, that uh, the trade policy wants to do to help SMEs take advantage of the free trade agreements that have been negotiated and. Uh, Helping them with the regulatory compliance and access to public procurement, so that focus is good to rebalance uh, the the way SMEs are grasping benefits compared to big multinationals, uh, and I think that's uh, that's a, that's important for 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 citizens. But the the issue about inequalities and growing inequalities, it's a deeper one. It has to see also with other policies than trade policy, and so it's it is more about how coordinate different instruments to, to rebalance those inequalities and to, to reduce those inequalities. But it's something that might might have found more space in the review. And I think that that may be a, a lack. Now, I think that there's a, there's another blind spot in the review, which concerns the coordination between trade and industrial policy. Uh, because we have a fierce debate at the moment in the EU on the need to develop more internal capacities in the EU. And that's a specific worry for the citizens. And the European Commission, I mean, the digital trade, has been very cautious about this nexus and this coordination. Uh, It is really advocating for an open market, but we can very well anticipate that there will be some tensions and contradictions between the temptation to make more use of the of subsidies on one side for for industrial purposes and on the other side, the willingness to frame more common rules at the international level to reduce uh, the use of subsidies. And I think that is something that could have been more clearly addressed to address really internal internal worries.
2: I think that's really a a fair point also because if you read the trade strategy, it suggests that it's a... um, a somewhat holistic policy, that it, that it brings together multiple policy domains. But on this question of industrial policy, there is a, a bit of a, of, a, of a blind spot. And that, that is absolutely now part of, I think, the European political debate about how the EU uses also the internal market as a geopolitical instrument. I think, I think we see more and more of that uh, taking place, as well as in the context of the COVID recovery, how do you ensure that, um, that European industries perform well? And that there is this tendency to want to use uh, trade policy also to ensure that the recovery primarily also benefits European enterprises. It brings me to a question also for you, Marianne, about the conditionalities that we now see being introduced in terms of signing free trade agreements with the EU. I mean, Elvira and I, we've been... As, as a, a French woman and a Dutchman, we've been, we've been kind of intrigued, if I can say so, about the Franco-Dutch non-paper on trade and sustainability. It's a fascinating document, but it, it does also point at putting more conditionalities on market access. How do you see that in the context of the, of the trade strategy and, and the EU trying to deliver on its trade ambitions?
0: But I think, again, those are long-ranging and long-standing developments. It's nothing new. It's just really articulated quite centrally in the new trade policy review. But coming back to your earlier question on the kind of inequalities, I think this issue of workers and jobs really is not emphasized enough in in the trade policy review, particularly in light of the COVID-19 recession that has raised and emphasized um, inequalities even further. And so I think the strategy could have put more emphasis on creating jobs, and supporting European workers. And the other element is also, I think, a shift from the 2015 strategy that was themed trade for all. And again, that was very much about ensuring transparency, ensuring inclusivity in trade publics, and again, public stakeholder engagement. And to some extent, I think that is being taken a bit for granted. So the strategy, I think, doesn't do enough to really convince the skeptical EU public to re-embrace. And then in terms of perhaps other blind spots or, you know, where there is kind of vague language around um, geoeconomics, I think that's emphasized at the beginning of the document, but it isn't really developed throughout. So this question of how does trade policy and foreign policy get um, linked increasingly isn't quite answered. And it does go back to this question also of now it's not just about trade policy, it's about industrial policy, it's about competition policy. And by trade policies under the exclusive competency of the European Commission, it's not quite as clear for some of those other areas. And so there is the risk that this could lead to a kind of clash over authority and a divergence between the EU and the member states going forward. And I think that, again, we would just have to see how it plays out, but could potentially be a blind spot.
2: I think that's a super important point also because it raises institutional questions about who's in charge. So the, the, the strategy has the ambition of tying different policy domains together to have a closer connection between trade and foreign policy. The current trade commissioner is a vice president but the, uh, of the European Commission, but at the same time, the head of the European External Action Service, who is supposedly in the lead on EU foreign policy, if you will, is also a vice president. So who who has the lead in terms of this linkage between trade and foreign policy objectives. I, I think that's very important that you put your, your finger on on that issue because this is going to be a very very important Brussels debate to have if this wants to deliver. We're going to take a quick break and when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on the EU's new trade strategy.
0: At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Britelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series.
2: We're back from our break, and I'm here with Elvire Fabry and Marianne Schneider-Petzinger. It brings me to a point which I thought was underexplored in the strategy. And I know that the DG Trade has said that they're coming out with something new, but I still found it quite surprising. That's at the absolute end of the strategy. I think the last or the before last bullet point, the EU presents this new instrument called the anti-coercion mechanism. Now, for students of geopolitics, this should raise all sorts of alarm bells. The anti-coercion mechanism, is this like a a trade deterrence strategy? Is this something where the EU is really going to flex its its trade arsenal to deter countries from doing bad things to EU businesses? And it's just mentioned there. It's sort of lying there at the end of the strategy as a kind of a surprise. And I'm going to be really interested to see what comes out of a new communication on the anti coercion mechanism. I just want to give either of you the opportunity to sort of inform inform me or us about what we could expect here. I mean, do you know anything about it?
0: I don't, but I guess um, it also raises another point for me, which I thought was kind of underexplored in, in the review, which is the critical imports aspect. And to some extent, I feel like The strategy doesn't say enough about how critically dependent on imports of raw materials, for example, the US rare earth semiconductors are really not mentioned at all, but they are so critical to achieve both the transition to the digital um, economy and to a low carbon economy. And so I was really surprised that um, this is only very much hinted at and not explored in any great detail. And again, this kind of issue of wanting to reduce strategic dependencies and strengthening supply chain resilience really only comes in the element of health, but not raw materials. And that, I think, is, for me, again, one of those underexplored areas.
2: Elvira, uh, can you shed some light on these two issues?
3: Well, I guess that concerning anti-cohesion, it is a way to address the, the very sensitive issue about extraterritoriality. It is something that is really hurting every, every time and i think that uh, the eu really wants to to be serious about it and is uh, wants to to build some new teeth on on that uh, and i think um, the extent of the instruments that uh, remains to be uh, to to be to be seen but i think it's an urgent issue all the more because china is also starting to uh, develop its own extraterritoriality approach and in the same vein, I would say that there's another um, specific worry that we could have concerning uh, export restriction, which has to see with what Marianne was mentioning about uh, securing the, the, some strategic imports. I think that the EU position for the moment is quite clear in a way that it has uh, updated its rules concerning uh, export restrictions of uh, dual, dual use. And, and we've got some rules, specific rules at the level of the WTO, but we have to anticipate a much more extensive use of export restrictions in the techni- technological sector. And I'm not sure we have a more clear view of what would be the EU position if there was a sort of piling up of res- export restrictions coming from the US or from, from China and how we would uh, respond. And, and this is a very risky area.
2: Yeah, I agree. And what I've heard about the anti-coercion mechanism is that it's precisely this. It's a response to extraterritoriality. It's about updating the blocking statute to make sure that it actually functions. There's concern that the, the Chinese are setting up a blocking statute of themselves. There's the whole question about trade enforcement as well, which can be used as a as a deterrent policy, if you will. But zooming out, then I, I return to this this big trade-off between the EU wanting to be the champion of multilateral rules-based trade and, and, and being open, and at the same time, developing all these instruments that actually suggest we are more and more moving to a very different trade environment, a trade environment where you need deterrence, where you need enforcement, where you need unilateral action to protect your interests, where you need investment screenings to reduce openness. I'm just wondering how you sort of see this in terms of what the EU wants to achieve in its own trade dialogues, for instance, with countries like the United States and, and, and China. And these are, of course, you know, the big, the two the two big players that we're all watching very closely. We have the EU-China Investment Agreement, which is now negotiated, but it still uh, needs to make its way through uh, through the European Parliament. There are questions about the EU-US trade relationship. How is this new trade strategy going to make Europe more assertive, more sustainable and more open in its trade relations with China and the, and the US? Perhaps, Marianne, you, you want to go first?
0: Sure. I mean, I was really struck by the fact that uh, the US and China are only mentioned relatively briefly in the document compared to, let's say, the focus on Africa. And and also with regards to the U.S., it really is much less about the bilateral relationship and much more focused on shared global concerns and initiatives, whether, again, it's WTO reform, whether it's cooperating on green and digital transformations, working, again, with the U.S. on competitive distortions and promoting a level playing field. So, you know, China clearly is here singled out. But at the same time, it doesn't talk about managing transatlantic tensions at all. And I think that ultimately is very, very critical if you want to move that shared agenda going forward. And so to me, it's about, you know, removal of the tariffs on steel and aluminum that were introduced by the Trump administration in the name of national security, but are still in place, despite the fact that we have a new administration now. On Boeing Airbus, again, there's positive signals That um, we're moving to a settlement. At least we've seen a temporary suspension on tariffs. But the question is, you know, can a permanent solution be found? Digital taxation, again, um, one of those issues where there is certainly transatlantic friction. And the question is, can that be sorted out, for example, in the OECD? And even on other issues such as climate, where there seems to be much more alignment and a shared interest, there could be transatlantic friction if the U.S. carbon border tax and the U.S. sorry the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism aren't coordinated, aren't aligned, so even on those areas where there is a kind of seeming shared agenda and appetite to move things forward. There could be frictions down the road. Coming back to also perhaps some of the aspects that are missing beyond China. Asia Pacific region really is largely absent from the document. and I think that is a huge missed opportunity because it is so critically important um, not just for kind of having a regional approach with the US on China, but because again also that area um, of the world is so critical, not just in terms of you know economic potential, but for security reasons. So if the EU is really serious about this new geoeconomic and geopolitical context, then it should be seeking efforts to not only kind of build on the bilateral relationships that it has, but to, you know, shape the rules going forward. And the US and the EU are both outside of the two mega regional deals in the region, RCEP and CPTPP. So to me, the critical question is also how can the US and the EU work together in the region beyond China?
2: Very valid points. And of course, you're speaking to us from London, where, if I observe it correctly, uh, the vibe in London these days is all about the UK joining CPTPP and and tilting towards the Indo-Pacific. in between the three trade powerhouses, the the US, the EU and China, how do you think this trade strategy is going to deliver the goods for the EU?
3: Well, I think in a way that in a way the EU has uh, taken a very realistic approach and concrete approach because it is pointing at the direction that it wants uh, global trade to take uh, with more rules at the multilateral level and to find some balance and to, to discipline China. We know all that, uh, all that narrative. But as you said, it is equipping the, itself with, uh, with new instruments, with the weaponry. And I think that it is, it is ready for the second phase if we were going to play bad between the three actors. And what I find interesting is that uh, the same way it has called China the, the competitor, the partner and the systemic rival, to see that the UK has adopted more or less the same theology and the US exactly the same. I mean, it's a, it's about small difference of wording, but it, it is the same approach. It shows that the leeway is not very, very large. And there might be more space for convergence between the EU and the US because there's no, there may be not so much alternative to confront China. To be more clear, the same way we will have to find a balance between industrial policy and trade policy and openness at the EU level. You see that at the moment in Washington, there's fierce debate about uh, the sustainability of decoupling from the from the Chinese market, and that. Uh, the U.S. industry needs to keep some access to the Chinese market to have the necessary dividends to to invest, more specifically in some sectors of the industry that request a lot of capital, and that they they might need to keep some access to the Chinese market. It might need to be to still be a, a, a partner, and that uh, the U.S. might need to get closer to the EU strategy because uh, decoupling may not be a sustainable uh, strategy. Having said that. As Marianne just described, the menu for for transatlantic cooperation is huge and there's a lot of disputes to to resolve. But I I would be a little more confident uh, of the possibility of cooperation and to to press China to to accept some reforms because uh, I'm not sure the U.S. has uh, the complete liberty to, uh, to move away from China.
2: Yeah. And, and I think very briefly also on the um, on the EU-China investment agreement, I the way I understand it is that it's also designed at least partially from an EU perspective to create a degree of parity with the United States in its approach to China. Uh, the US and China, of course, have their phase one deal. And the, the CHI investment agreement is, in some respects, trying to level the playing field, if you want to use that term, in terms of EU-China relations and bring it at the same or at a similar level to allow a dialogue between the US and and the EU on China to develop with a degree of parity. I think it'll be fascinating to watch also, of course, because Kai is quite controversial at the moment, but it's it's definitely something that that I'm, I'm, I'm sure all three of us will be, uh, will be watching very, very closely. I mean, final question: in that triangular relationship, and given that we have a whole menu of issues that the U.S. and the EU need to reach agreement on, and we have tensions in the EU-China relationship, given Kai, what do you think is going to be it? Adopted first is Kai going to move through the European Parliament before the U.S. and the EU reach a meaningful trade deal uh, and resolve some of the issues that Marianne mentioned? Just uh, looking in your crystal ball, where 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 do you want to put your place your bets? Uh,
3: I I think uh, it wouldn't be a good idea at the moment to to present Kai for ratification at the European Parliament. The rivalry on sanctions related to human rights is really. I mean, and the Chinese reaction uh, to, to the European sanctions is really pushing the European public opinion into the arms of the, the US. And that has to see with a, what could be a deeper trend in the European society, moving towards a more US, US approach and maybe a, a temptation to, to decouple and to close more the European market. What it says also, what it underlines also, is that this agreement has been signed with really a lack of uh, political support during all the, the the negotiation, the process of negotiation, and that it has been presented to the to, to the public opinion uh, without an t- explanation of the broader play field agenda uh, currently put in place by the European Commission. And that they, they they were not able to identify where it was coming from, what it was changing, and what what it was po- pointing at, and that there's there has been a completely misunderstanding on the leverage of the of these So at this point, uh, I think Kai, it's going to be uh, suspended for a while to see if we can get better relation with China. I would I would bet for a resolution on Airbus Boeing uh, dispute sooner than any kind of agreement on on CHI?
0: Yes, I I would share that assessment. I mean, there was always a big question mark over the ratification of CHI in light of implementation of market access, level playing field, and critically also labor conditions. And now I think in light of the recent sanctions, it's a very, very, very long shot. I think it's not going to go forward anytime soon. And I think, um, again, one of the issues that has really been more crystal clear to me is that when, when CHI was trying kind to of first denounce it was very much um, talk about a transatlantic divergence between, um, again, China, on the one hand, pushing the EU and um, the US kind of further apart. But I think um, the sanctions really kind of dispel those concerns because it seems to be a much tougher approach now and much more of a transatlantic alignment on pushing back on China. So I think the Chinese have certainly kind of undermined any efforts about transatlantic divergence
2: yeah I think that's a that's a valid point, and i'd I'd, I'd share that and also say that in my mind, Kai wasn't necessarily this crowning achievement to show a new age in eu china relations, but rather the reverse kind of a test to what extent eu china relations can develop, because there were a number of elements, say Chinese signing up to ilO conventions, uh, market access uh, guarantees. China would have to digest, and if that doesn't happen, then actually the failure of CHI or the suspension of CHI is much more symbolic of the future of EU-China relations rather than the actual negotiation success at the, end of, uh, at the end of last year. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you both, but unfortunately, we have to bring this now to a close. The trade policy review from the European Union throws up a lot of questions. It's, it's interesting to hear you both um, express a number of positives, but also issues where um, there still needs to be work done. And uh, I think to that extent, it's, it's been very constructive also to hearing from you where some of the blind spots are, where we expect a little bit more from the EU in terms of um, the rollout of the agenda. And it's, it's fine tuning. Um, and it's a space that we're, we're, of course, going to watch very closely. Marianne Schneider-Petzinger, Elvire Fabry, thank you very much for joining this conversation for the AIG Global Trade Series 2021. Thank you.
1: The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG, the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendale Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade, and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.